back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It is time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything's going well for you here on this Monday, the 23rd day of May. Hope you all had a very fun, safe, happy weekend of whatever it is you may have been doing. Now, whether it was you were spending a lot of time keeping track of what's going on in the NBA playoffs, the NHL postseason, baseball, or help. Even if you weren't watching a lot of sports, you were just out and about with friends because it was uh, very much our first beach-like weekend uh, this past weekend, but digress on that. A lot to talk about today, give you some thoughts on the aforementioned NBA playoffs, mixing a thought or two about the Rangers, Lakers head coaching search, as well as some of the controversy that has been stirring up in the Bronx over the last week with a couple of certain members of the New York Yankees. But I wanted to start today with the Mets, who, you know, normally there's a lot of this doom and gloom thought when it comes to the Mets from Met fans. And it, quite frankly, it's it's something that they've never been able to overcome in their minds. Anytime the slightest thing doesn't go their way or the slightest negative thing happens, it's like, oh, here we go again. And it's something that's been implanted in their minds, implanted in the minds of New York Jet fans, somewhat Brooklyn Net fans, but always with the Mets and the Jets. Because, <coughs> excuse me, they're kind of the little brother teams in this area when it comes to the major sports. So anytime that there's you know, a losing streak, there's a blown save by a late-inning reliever, or in this case, injuries, it's like, here we go again. And there was, even with all the optimism coming into this year, all the moves made by Steve Cohen, there was a little bit of that at the end of spring training when arguably the best player on this team, quite possibly the face of the Mets franchise for the last four or five years, Jacob DeGrom, when it was announced, he would not be starting the season with this team. You figured, all right, 
We'll get him back end of May, beginning of June, and be able to get 20 starts out of him. But as you were getting these updates on his recovery from uh, this stress reaction of his scapula, you were realizing, uh, this is going to be pushed back a little bit. Because remember, even when they would say, oh, it's healed, you're still probably looking at at least a six-week timeline because he's not throwing the baseball. He's not stepping on the mound. You can't just say, oh, he's healed, ready to go, and say Thursday he's starting for the Mets at City Field. No, he essentially has to go through a spring training process. So you're waiting for that update that says, all right, he's ready to begin the process. But we haven't even gotten that. Now, as I was leaving here last week, I got the update from uh, MLB.com's Anthony DeComo of a report the Mets put out about DeGrom's process. And got to be honest with you, it's not, not what you want to hear in the words of former Yankee manager Joe Girardi. It's, it doesn't bring a lot of confidence or reassurance that this is going the right direction when you read, quote, DeGrom underwent follow-up imaging yesterday that revealed continued healing in the scapula. He will continue to build distance and velocity in his throwing program, and we will provide an update on his progress when appropriate. And the part that I want to look at is when it says continued healing. Not that it says, oh, he's healed, that it's continued healing. And that that leaves you wondering, when are we getting this guy? When is he going to step on the mound for the New York Mets? I mean, now at the very earliest, at the very earliest, you're looking probably at after the All-Star break. And that might be generous at this point because they're going to do another MRI likely at the end of this month. And at that point, then you know you, you still got to do the ramp-up process. And you're probably looking at middle of June at the earliest before he steps on the mound to begin a rehab assignment. And their pitching coach, Jerry, Jeremy Hefner, has already said that <laughs> it's going <laughs> to probably, excuse me, Jeremy Hefner's already said it's probably going to take at least four to five starts to get him stretched out before we see him in a major league game. And to me, you take all the time necessary. You make sure that when this guy steps on the mound for the Mets, that he's here for the remainder of this year, whatever this year pertains for uh, the Mets. And, you know, it's very easy to say that, oh, he'll be the same old Jacob DeGrom. You're going to get the two-time Cy Young Award winner, the guy who was the best pitcher in baseball for the last four years. 
But a couple things here. A, as we, we've seen plenty of times over the years, when someone comes off injury, it takes time. It, you don't just get right back out there and they're the same guy that they were. And B, with all the injuries that he's had the last year where you, know, you can't quite pinpoint why they're happening, but you see that the, it continues to be a thing. It continues to be a problem that the Mets just seemingly can't point out. How are we so sure that he's not going to go back out there and get re-injured? That he's not going to go out there and have something else? Because the most foolish thing that I think has happened here with this DeGrom situation is that when he was pitching in spring training, he was already throwing 100 miles an hour. And, like, can you tell the guy to dial it back a little bit? It's spring training. And on top of that, you've seen the jump in velocity that he's had in the last several years, where last year he was averaging 98, 99 on his fastball. And like four years prior to that, it was a 93-mile-an-hour fastball. He's gone out there with this mindset where he just has fallen in love with the radar gun. But even with that, with DeGrom, you're like, all right, we still have a strong rotation behind him. You know, with the additions that they made this offseason, you were able to take the likes of Carlos Carrasco and Taiwan Walker and push them to the back part of the rotation. You had a kid in Tyler McGill who was stepping up and pitching very well for this team. Not to mention the great starts that you were getting out of both Max Scherzer and Chris Bassett, the aforementioned offseason acquisitions. But then this past week happens where Max Scherzer leaves his start on Wednesday night and we find out the next day that it's a moderate to high-grade internal oblique strain on his left side and he's going to be out for six to eight weeks. (laughs) Excuse me. He's going to be out for six to eight weeks (coughs) and with him being... 37 years old, you've got to take the long route on that. You've got to look at it and say he's out until at least after the All-Star break as well. And now, as we know, Max Scherzer tries to be a tough guy. He doesn't, he's not stupid like Noah Syndergaard was where he said, oh, I'm not going to take an MRI. I know my body. But we've seen Max Scherzer in the past take a foul ball off his eye during batting practice and start the next night. So he's got to be protected from being his own worst enemy. So now you're without your two Cy Young candidates, your two aces for the next two months. And you're looking at a rotation of Bassett, Carrasco, Taiwan Walker... Hopefully McGill coming back within the next week or two from his bicep tendonitis. And then some combination of either Trevor Williams or David Peterson. Normally I'd say sound the alarm, Met fans. It's happening again. But there's a different vibe to this team this year. You have, while I'm not 
completely doing cartwheels over him. You have a, a competent manager in Buck Sowalter. You have a front office that is not doing things just for publicity's sake. That's why you know these rumors that have started over the weekend, all this social media talk about bringing back Bartolo Colon, to me, would be an outright embarrassment. I don't care if he's throwing bullpen sessions in his uh, native land or working hard as reported by an MLB insider with hopes that he'll receive an opportunity from the Mets. The guy hasn't pitched in the big leagues in four years. He's 49 years old. This would be the equivalent of the Yankees bringing back Roger Clemens in 2007, and the Mets would lose all of the credibility that they've built up in the last nine to ten months here. So the rotation you have is what you're looking at for the next two months, if as long as no one gets hurt. And as I said, normally I'd say it's gloom and doom, but something feels different about this Mets team this year. You know, with all this bad news, they could have said, oh, woe is us, and started to uh, sink down. But even with as bad as the Rockies were or, or are, it is difficult going to Colorado. And they went out there and took care of business and won two out of three this weekend, including splitting the doubleheader on Saturday. They've shown a clutchness at times and have found ways to win games that in the past they would find ways to lose those games. So yes, it sucks that you don't know when DeGrom's coming back. It sucks that you've lost Max Scherzer until after the All-Star break. But this Mets team, they've built up some space between themselves and the competition. You know, they're eight games above the Braves and the Phillies. They're eight and a half against the, uh, up on the Marlins. And the Nationals are not even worth mentioning how much space the Mets have between themselves and the Nats. They've got the second best record in the National League right now. And have gone 11-1-1 in their first 13 games. First 13 series, excuse me of this season. So it's not, you know, it's not the Terry Collins um, Mets or the Mickey Calloway Mets where the slightest little thing is going to send them in a tailspin. This is a different year. This is a different Mets team. So while it's easy for me to sit here and say Mets fans should be um, positive, should uh, not be so negative because I've never experienced the negativity that it is being a Met fan, thankfully. Try to have some form of optimism. Try to realize that as bad as it is, this is not the Mets of the past. All right, a lot I want to get to over the next about oh, 40 minutes or so here, maybe more, maybe less. Uh, give us some thoughts on the NBA Conference Finals, mix in some thoughts on the Rangers, uh, the Lakers head coaching search, some college sports as well, 
as uh, some interesting things going on in the Bronx uh, in the last week that I don't think we can avoid conversation on this. And I will get to that coming up. So please sit back, relax, help, put your feet up if you feel like it, and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. As the name of the podcast says, it's called Keeping It Sports with M4. And when I say that, I don't just mean, oh, the game action. I'm talking about off-the-field stuff as well. There are times where real-life circumstances blend in with the world of sports. There are times that things happen that they're unavoidable to talk about because sometimes we forget these athletes, they're real living human beings as well. We try to act like they're robots because they're there to entertain us for sometimes three to four hours each night, but they're living, breathing human beings as well. They make mistakes. They go through this crazy thing we call life just like we do. And there's things that will occur that you just can't avoid talking about. Take, for example, what to me has been the best story of the New York Yankees season, and that has been the breakout of Nestor Cortez, who you know we saw last year pitched very well once the Yankees moved him from the bullpen to the starting rotation. But so far this year, he's been a rock star. There have been some that have gone a little too far saying that, oh, he should be starting the all-star game or that he's already a Cy Young contender. That we might need to calm down with a little bit considering it's only eight start into his season, but still he has been 
a godsend for this Yankee team that all the way around, you look at their rotation, everybody has pitched well. But no one more so than the guy they're calling Nasty Nestor. But as we've tend to see over the years, whether it's a prospect living up to the billing or someone like this who was a 36th round draft pick that comes out of nowhere to have great success, there's always the haters that want to bring them down. In this case, it's a Twitter account known as Pablo's Spam, aka at Spam Pablo, who last week, as Nestor Cortez was throwing eight lights-out innings against the Chicago White Sox, decided to do a little bit of digging into Cortez's past to try and destroy his reputation as a person and bring down the great success that he's had at the start of this season. He would tweet, quote, I'm not trying to quote-unquote, cancel him or anything. But I'd like to clarify that he used the N-word in at least a dozen tweets between 2012 and 2015. So between the ages of of 17 and 20, excuse me. He would post images of old tweets from Nestor Cortez's account from aforementioned the ages of 17 to 20, where in these tweets, Cortez was seen using the N-word several times. And a lot of these tweets were tweets were lyrics from songs, including uh, lyrics from a French Montana song, Ain't Worried About Nothing, and kind of all of them were haphazardly throwing around the N word. Some of them were as direct tweets toward friends of his who happened to be African American. And, you know, a couple of questions I got here. Number one, if you're not trying to cancel him or, or anything, as you say, then what was the point of you posting these? What was the point of the fact that you went back 10 years on his tweets just to look up if he had anything scandalous, anything dirty to his name that could potentially destroy his reputation? And this this comes off to me First off, as someone who clearly they're not a Yankee fan, and even if they are, they're jealous of the success of someone that, let's face it, you look at Nestor Cortez, physically you don't see someone who's, you know, the modern day athlete. You see someone who's more of the common man, a guy who's, as he says it, five foot eleven. At what, about 180 pounds, if that? A guy who 
when we first saw him about three or four years ago, was throwing all of that 86 to 89 miles an hour. Since then, it's gotten himself in even better shape, added some miles per hour (coughs) to his fastball, excuse me, and has turned himself into a pretty good starting pitcher in this league. So this person comes off as someone that they see the success that Cortez is having and they just want to destroy their life. And to me, this comes off as so wrong because we don't know who this person is. We don't know what their real name is. They're just hiding behind a social media account. And they're just doing this out of pure jealousy, pure hatefulness, pure evil. Listen, Cortez should not have been tweeting this stuff. He should not have been throwing around the N-word on social media. Even if that's conversation that he was allowed to have with his black or African-American friends, they were okay, cool, comfortable with him throwing the N-word around. Not something that you should be posting on social media because that can eventually come back to bite you. But still, he was posting this at the ages of 17 to 20, where, yes, you're old enough at that point to vote, to drive a car. Hell, you're even old enough to uh, join the army at that age. So it's not like he's you know, 12 or 13 years old and doesn't know any better. He should know better than to use this kind of language. But at the same time, rather than you know, cancel him, make him look like the worst human being in the world, use this as a teaching moment. Use this as a, hey, you should watch what you post on social media because it could come back to bite you. And as a way to educate young people about what to uh, post and what not to post, even if it's something you're allowed to say by friends, relatives, or coworkers that happen to be black or African-American. And it's very ironic that this comes out this week when you take in consideration how the week ended with the New York Yankees as they lost two out of three over the weekend to the Chicago White Sox, those two losses being swept in yesterday's doubleheader. But the bigger story out of all of this is what happened on Saturday, where once again, we had a on-field incident, if you want to call it, between Josh Donaldson and Tim Anderson. This goes back to last week in Chicago when Anderson slid into third base. He thought Donaldson's tag was trying to push him off the bag and they got up, had some words before patting each other on the chest. And even still, that led to benches and dugouts uh, clearing uh, slightly. But Nothing, no worse for wear. There was also an incident where Anderson slid hard into second base. 
and there were some words exchanged there. Donaldson as well. You know, Donaldson, Donaldson, as I've said since the trade was made, was exactly the kind of guy that the Yankees needed. They've had too many choir boys in their locker room over the years and needed kind of that jerkish person to join this team. That guy that you hate when you're playing him, but you love him when he's on your team. Well, he got involved in a bit of controversy over this weekend when there was another incident between himself and Anderson where he's (coughs) trotting off the field after running the bases in (coughs) the third (coughs) inning. i got to hate this cough. And him and Anderson have some words, which as we would come to find out later, was a... Donaldson saying to Anderson, hey, Jackie. And the context behind that was back in April of 2019 in an article in Sports Illustrated, Tim Anderson would say the following, quote, I kind of feel like today's Jackie Robinson. That's huge to say, but it's cool, man, because he changed the game. And I feel like I'm getting to a point where I need to change the game. And his point behind that was he wants to bring fun back to the game. Well, obviously Donaldson heard that or read that and used that as kind of a sarcastic remark at Anderson. And that would lead to situation where in the fifth inning when Donaldson was coming to the plate Grandal cuts him off and they get into a verbal spat back and forth leading to the benches and bullpens clearing Anderson having to be restrained by Jose Abreu and a member of the coaching staff and it going as far as after the game Tony LaRusso saying that Josh Donaldson made a racist comment, essentially calling him a racist. Now, Donaldson would claim that this is something that they've said to each other in the past, jokingly, and that he'd like to keep this as a private matter that they can uh, discuss and clear the air there. But Anderson uh, would say after that game, quote, he just made a disrespectful comment, basically trying to call me Jackie Robinson. Like, what's up, Jackie? I don't play like that. I really don't play at all. I wasn't going to bother nobody today, but he made the comment. It was disrespectful. I don't think it was called for couple things here. Number one, as I said, Donaldson is a guy that gets under people's skin. He can be a jerk to deal with when he's not on your team. But I in no way interpret what he said as being racist. Now, it's easy for me to say because I'm a white guy. I've never had to deal with racism personally. I've, I have 
a bunch of black African-American friends who, thankfully, as far as I know, none of them have dealt with any racial attacks, personal attacks involving racism, whether it's them being called the N-word, them being referred to as the C-word, or any other racial slur you want to um, throw out there. And as a lot of you will know, I am very much a supporter of all of the Black Lives Matter causes because the last thing I want to see is I wake up one day and one of those aforementioned friends or one of my coworkers or someone I know that is black or African-American was the victim of a racist attack, such as what we saw up in Buffalo about a week ago at a, at a grocery store. And I can't sit here and tell Tim Anderson how he should feel, how to feel about something. But at the same time, you're almost opening yourself up to this when you refer to yourself as today's <coughs> Jackie Robinson. When you refer to yourself in those terms. Because even if you want to say, oh, I'm going to make change. I'm going to uh, have an impact on the sport. That's one thing. But you can't compare what you want to do for the sport on what Jackie Robinson did. Jackie Robinson broke a color barrier. Jackie Robinson dealt with a lot of hate, was spit on, was called a lot of disrespectful things by visiting fans. Hell, even some of his own fans. There was a lot of slings and arrows that he dealt with and never once turned around and you know, hauled back and got in a fight with an opposing player, fan, whatever it may be, because he lived in very backwards times back then, had to just you know, chin up and unfortunately deal with it. So while I, on the surface, I don't view what Donaldson said as racist, Anderson didn't come out and say that he viewed it as racist. He viewed it as disrespectful. And I could understand that because listen, we all have names. We all want to be referred to by our own given name. You see in the title of the podcast, it has my nickname M3. That's something that for close to 20 years now, friends and even a few family members have referred to me as. And I'm perfectly fine with that. I love that nickname. I'll hopefully carry it with me through the rest of my life. But if someone start calling me something other than M3 or Mike or Michael along those lines, that's where I have a problem with it. That's where I would take issue with it. But what I think is really sad here is the fact that the media, in particular ESPN, has taken this and tried to turn it into a narrative that, oh, Josh Donaldson 
is a racist. Josh Donaldson it uh, said something offensive uh, to the black community. No, he said what he thought was an inside joke between himself and Anderson. And clearly, Anderson, it's something that Anderson does not view as a joke, at least doesn't view as a joke anymore. His views on it a couple of years ago could have been completely different than what it is now. ESPN is overreacting to the comments of Tony LaRussa, who, quite frankly, should have just said no comment. Because to throw out there, Donaldson made a racist remark, now it tells... It says to people, oh, Josh Donaldson's a racist. And listen, there's three things in life that you could say to, about someone and they can't get up from. That they're a domestic abuser, that they're a child molester, or that they're a racist. I, if you want to go and throw an animal abuser in there, as far as a label, fine. Be, within all means. But those are things that you haphazardly put on someone's record, someone's reputation, they almost can't get up from it. Now, you know, between him saying that and ESPN running with this and turning it into a story for two to three innings last night, it makes Josh Donaldson look like this awful human being that he... How can he get up from that? How can he recover from that? Because, you know, it's not like La Russa is going to be suspended, punished, or anything for that comment. And please, as I said, La Russa needs to pipe down. He's got a bunch of skeletons in his own closet that he should be more so worried about. You know, how about not getting a DUI um, one of these days, Tony? But, no, I just think that people took something that happened between these two guys on the field, a comment that John, Josh Donaldson either meant as a joke or meant to get under Anderson's skin to try and uh, uh, <coughs> provoke him or, or, or bother him and turn it into something that it was not meant to be. And I hope baseball does not overreact here based on LaRusse's comments or how ESPN covered this last night and over the weekend. And like I mentioned with Cortez, rather than you know feel pressured into some kind of punishment, some suspension toward Donaldson, Use this as a teaching moment. I mean, you now have CC Sabathia as a, you know, liaison essentially between the players' association and the commissioner. Hopefully, he steps in here, and you know, has a conversation with both guys, and cooler heads can prevail, and this doesn't turn into a worse story than it already is. All right, I'm going to try and stop coughing here because I know that's probably ruining this podcast. I take a break. 
come back on the other side and turn my attention to the NBA postseason as well as some other things I want to get to along the way here. So continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Now let's talk about some more pleasant such as, you know, on the court match. Because while things like what I just discussed are important to get out there, are important, you can't just ignore them. The main reason we watch sports is for the actual action, for the distraction from normal life, and for to laugh, cry, cheer, root for, boo, something that really does not matter for a little while. So we're down to four in the NBA postseason. And quite frankly, right now, it feels like we're down to three. Because while you never like to say it's over, you never like to completely rule anything out because we've seen crazier things happen in sports. It feels like the Western conference finals for all sake and purposes is over because we sit here right now with the golden state warriors going into game four tomorrow night with a three games to nothing lead. And you just wondering can the Mavericks even get a game here can they even make this somewhat of a sweatable series for Golden State I mean there's been moments throughout these games there's been times where you have looked and said oh here come the Mavericks this underdog plucky team but in the end you see why the Warriors have reopened this window, reopened this dynasty, which is which is weird because you look at there's almost been three iterations 
of this Warriors team for the last seven years. You know, the, there was the original group with Steph, Clay, and Draymond that went to back-to-back finals. And Steph won back-to-back MVP awards those years. Then they became unstoppable and got Kevin Durant. Then there was the Durant leaving, the injuries to Clay, Curry kind of by himself because Draymond was hit or miss. And they miss even missed the postseason that first year after that. And you start to wonder, is this the end of the Warriors? Well, the window has been reopened with the reemergence of Clay Thomas Thompson. And please, he he's not even anywhere near what he's going to be next year. This is just him shaking the rust off and <coughs> even shaking the rust off has been better than nothing. You have young players on this team emerging with Jordan Poole, with Kaminka, Wiseman hopefully coming back healthy. And then there's Andrew Wiggins, who's finally living up to the billing, who we probably overrated him early on based on him being a first overall draft pick and all the pressure that comes behind that. The fact that the Cavaliers traded him so early to get Kevin Love and he never quite lived up to the expectations or the hype that you would expect from a number one overall pick. But he's been so important to this Warriors reemergence. Last night, notwithstanding, where he was, quite frankly, the second-best player on the court for the uh, Warriors, had some of the uh, most important moments in, in this game. And what has added to his importance is the defense that he's playing on Luka Doncic. You're seeing he's getting his breaks in in these games when Luka goes to the bench. And as soon as Luka comes back in, here comes Andrew Wiggins. And he kind of had the moment that sealed not just the game, but this series last night when late in the fourth quarter, he had that tomahawk dunk on Luka Doncic that was originally called an offensive foul. And via review, rightfully called a good basket. I mean, the Warriors, they <coughs> they just look completely unstoppable and unguardable for this Mavs team. A Mavs team that, you know, you saw them show a lot of heart, a lot of grit, determination against the Phoenix Suns last round. But between Luka having an off-shooting night in Game 1, the Warriors having a amazing comeback in the second half of Game 2, I mean, the the Mavs are up by 24 points at halftime. You're thinking, oh, we're going to have some kind of series here. And in the second half, the uh, the Warriors just blitz them, including dominating them in the paint, 62-30. to 30. And then last night, where you know, the, the Mavericks were just never able to get the right bounce. And how many times you see the ball bounce off the rim and the Warriors... 
prevented them from getting that second chance opportunity. I mean, the Mavericks had so many chances to make this a game last night, but never could quite get over the hump, could never quite cross that hurdle and make this an exciting competitive game. So in all likelihood, we're looking at the Warriors heading back to the NBA Finals for the sixth time in the last, what, nine years here? Eight years, some, something along uh, that uh, reign there. Because, you know, teams that are 0-3 uh, in uh, playoff series in the NBA are 146-0. The Warriors have just dominated the third quarter in these games. And that also happens to be what has been Luka's worst quarter in each one of these games. So it's all, all but the fat lady singing here for the Golden State Warriors over the Dallas Mavericks. Now, what's going to be interesting is they're going to have, if they do get this done tomorrow night, and I fully expect them to do so, they're going to have a lot of time on their hands. They're going to have a, a lot of time to sit back, rest, and watch the Heat Celtics series that, you know, every time you seemingly have this series figured out, something wild happens, something crazy happens. You have Jimmy Butler's outburst in game one uh, where he just dominated the second half. And the, the Celtics had as abysmal a third quarter as you're going to find. And now part of that is they were without two key pieces in their rotation in Marcus Smart and Al Horford. And at some point you figured that might catch up with them on the road and going up against as well coached team as the Heat are. But the Celtics showed how offensively explosive they can be in game two once they had their big three back together. And the, the difference in this game was not just having Marcus Smart back, but the fact that they made their three-pointers while the Heat didn't. So you figure, oh, it's going back to Boston. Uh, the Celtics have tied things up here. They now have home court advantage. They're going to be sitting pretty. Well, no, not exactly how things worked out coming into uh, this game. A, Tatum had the worst shooting night of his uh, life. B, Bam Adebayo was seemingly unstoppable. And all of this happening while players are seemingly getting hurt, falling on the ground left and right. I mean, Butler didn't, remember, Jimmy Butler didn't play the second half of this game. That opened the door for the Celtics to come back from what was, at one point they were trailing in the first half by 26 points. And that 10-0 run at, right before halftime coincided with the, the Tatum 3 at the buzzer there, kind of gave you a feel that, oh, maybe they're going to come back and win this game. They Hell, they even got it to within one point in the fourth quarter. But after that happened, you had a big three by Struess. You had what continued to be the 
bugaboo for the Celtics all night long, come back to bite them in the end, which was turnovers, uh, shot clock violation. And then you had Bam coming up clutch with what turned out to be the dagger shot there to put him up back up by eight with about a minute to go here. And the things that killed the Celtics in game three were very unCeltic like A, you thought Tatum was over the woes of early on this postseason, but he, he shot three for 14 on Saturday night. Couldn't buy a bucket. Even, even as Brown is having this amazing game to try to drag the Celtics back into this game. But the big problem for Boston was 23 turnovers and the, the Heat were able to turn those 23 turnovers into 33 points. Meanwhile, the Celtics were not able to capitalize on any rare mistakes by the Heat. So now you head into tonight where it's a very, very important game for these Boston Celtics. I know he said he's going to play, but who sees how... Who knows how he's going to be when he gets to the arena, that being Jimmy Butler, who did not play the second half of Saturday night with the knee inflammation. And even if he's, you know, 70%, Eric Spolster may say, let's hold him out. Let's keep him (coughs) rested with how well we played the other night without him. And the fact is that the onus is more on them to win here than it is on us. Because the Celtics are currently 4-0 in this postseason following a loss. At some point, there's only so many times that you can test fate like that. At some point, there's only so many times you can have resiliency. And you figure at some point, they're not going to be able to to stop a losing streak in this postseason because you know the talent level the competition level becomes tougher and tougher as you go on and you're going you're not going up against a you know somewhat you know rookie coach here with the heat you got Eric Spostra who's won two NBA championships and went to the finals in the bubble a couple of years ago. Even without Butler, he's going to have his guys ready to go. They've seemingly had this next man up mentality all year long. So it's almost a must win here for the Celtics. I know it wouldn't end their season, but you're looking at a, a situation where they lose tonight, go down 3-1, they would have to win three straight and two of those three in Miami. Not something really you want to deal with. They're going to have to win a game in Miami at some point, but you'd much rather that be at 2-2 rather than all the pressure um, in the world piled on top of you being down 3-1. Going to take final break here, come back, close things out for this Monday afternoon. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back.
Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. All right, only a few more minutes left here, but a couple more things I want to talk about. A good win for the Rangers yesterday to somewhat keep their hopes alive against the Hurricanes here. Now, they lost the first two games uh, down in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it should have been 1-1 heading into Game 3. Uh, yesterday, you know, the Rangers played a great game one for at least 40 minutes or so there, but were never able to build upon that lead. You know, one nothing to me in hockey or baseball is as scary a lead as possible. You want to build upon that. You don't want that slight window of opportunity to be there for the opposition, especially when you're viewed as the underdog in the series. And while it wouldn't have completely locked up the game, Capo Cop, oh, 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 Cock, however you pronounce his name, Capo uh, Caco, um, missed what was a wide open goal with about six and a half minutes uh, uh left in uh, the third period there that while wouldn't have locked things up by any means would have really put the pressure on Carolina because they've been a great home team in uh, this postseason so far not so much on the road as we could see with their three losses to the Bruins and then uh, losing yesterday but as soon as they tied things up with about two minutes to go in regulation. You, you had that sinking feeling in your mind that even with overtime coming up, that things were not going to go too well for uh, the uh, Rangers. And they would lose what was a gut-wrenching game in game one. And while they battled, while they gave you some hope, weren't able to tie things up in game two, but... Yesterday, now they did miss a couple of open shots, especially uh, with uh, the goaltender pulled. 
but took care of business at home to at least, you know, keep hope alive, at least keep pressure on uh, the Hurricanes who, you know, have to prove to everyone they can win a game on the road in this because you're not going to just be able to go 4-4-4 throughout this postseason, especially if you um, play the Lightning in the next round, which is looking all likelihood with how easily they've handled the uh, Florida Panthers through that series so far. One of these teams is going to have to win road games at some point to show that they can get to a cup final. Now, one story that wasn't particularly talked about uh, so much last week, I think just based on everything that's going on with the conference finals in the NBA playoffs, Stanley Cup postseason, even with the baseball season. Now, college football is probably the furthest from post most people's mindset right now, unless you live in the deep South or Texas or the West coast, none of us are really hard pressed with college football being on our minds as they're still about three months away from uh, their season beginning. But Nick Saban, who has quite frankly kind of turned into a bit of a whiner and complainer was having, I guess, you want to call it a town hall or some public speaking appearance with local business leaders uh, down in Tuscaloosa last week, made some unnecessary comments, if you ask me, and made some comments that for a guy that who (coughs) most of us view as the greatest coach of all time, should be above those, should be better than these comments. When he would come on and say, quote, I mean, we were second in recruiting last year. Texas A&M was first. Texas A&M bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, likeness. We didn't buy one player, all right? But I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future because more and more people are doing it. It's tough. Hell, I've read about it it, in the the paper. I mean, Jackson State paid a a guy $1 million last year that was a really good Division I player to come to the school. It was in the paper. They bragged about it. Nobody did anything about it. I mean, these guys in Miami are going to play basketball there for $400,000. It's in the newspaper. The guy tells you how he's doing it. Now, he tried to backtrack from that on Thursday, saying that he was more so meaning that you can buy players through name, like, and imaging, and that he shouldn't have mentioned any school by name. But quite frankly, he comes off as a bit of a jackass and a whiner and complainer. You know, it's it's all fun and love. It's all good when Alabama is constantly getting the top two or three recruiting class in all of uh, college football. When you're the big dog and don't have to deal with 
any form of competition. But now you've started to see not just other schools step up and um, be competition within his own conference, but it be other schools that are coached by former assistant coaches of his, whether it be this past year with Georgia bouncing back after an embarrassing loss in the SEC title game and shutting them down in the uh, national championship game, or now Jimbo Fisher, the head coach of Texas A&M, and them able to get a top recruiting class. And I love what Jimbo Fisher uh, responded with here, saying, quote, some people think they're God. Go dig into how God did his deal. You may find out a lot of things you don't want to know. We built him up to be the czar of football. Go dig into his past or anybody that's ever coached with him. You, you can find out anything you, you want to find out. What, do, what he does and how he does it. It's despicable. And I love that he's not even taking Nick Saban's phone calls in attempts of an apology because Nick Saban, like I said, he comes up small here, comes up looking like a bit of a whiner and complainer that, oh, the greatest coach or perceived greatest coach in the history of college football can't get all the top recruits that he wants because now players realize that, oh, we can go to other schools that maybe aren't as historically important, and it it's still, A, get us to the NFL in the same time frame we expect, and B, we can make money off the field from doing that because they have just as many boosters with deep pockets as Alabama does. In some cases, more, especially when you're talking about such an oil-rich state as in Texas. It, Like I said, just it made Saban look awful, made him look bad. And you know, there's no, to me, there's no amount of apology that you can do to stop yourself from looking like a whiner and a complainer here. It's comments say he just should not have said, you know, there are times that we're all thinking something and we shouldn't come out and say it. And this is one of those times because Rather than, you know, all hailing Saban today, we're all laughing at what a joke he looks and sounds like. And finally, you have what seems like the never-ending search for the Lakers' next head coaching hire. And as we've seen in the last 48 hours, they've come down to Three finalists. Three finalists that, to me, are all respectable, well-deserving candidates for an NBA head coaching hiring in this league. You have former Portland Trailblazers head coach Terry Stotts, who coached that team from 2012 to 2021. They went to the postseason uh, his final eight years, even got to a conference final in 2019, was great when it came to de- uh, 
developing guards and perimeter players, played a big hand in the development of of both Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum, and I thought was kind of unjustly fired uh, there a couple of years ago. You have current Milwaukee Bucks assistant um, coach uh, Darvin Ham, who's a former player in this league, been an assistant under Mike Budenhoser, dating back to his days coaching the Hawks in 2013, has been a candidate for other head coaching jobs in the league, including the Hornets. And you've got Kenny Atkinson, who, listen, if you've listened this long enough, you know that I was a big fan of Kenny when he was coaching the Brooklyn Nets, has had a good reputation over the years when it comes to player development, and I thought had a very good three-year run with the Nets. And only reason he got fired was because Kyrie Irving didn't want to be coached by this guy and got Kevin Durant to go to the front office to say, hey, we should move on from Kenny Atkinson. He got the shaft there. And I think the Nets would have gone deeper in each of the last two postseasons if they had Kenny Atkinson as their head coach rather than Steve Nash. But here's the problem. Even with these three candidates, none of these guys scream out Lakers head coach to me. See, there's a big difference between being an NBA head coach and being the head coach of a franchise to the level of the Los Angeles Lakers. One of the, still to this day, one of the pristine jobs in not just the NBA, but all of professional sports you know you need someone that come in there and is not going to take any of the crap that is going on it now the crap where yeah genie bus is the owner and rob plank is the general manager but they're listening too much to the outside voices especially in the case of genie bus where you know her best friend is linda rambus Linda Rambus is the wife of Kirk Rambus. Kirk Rambus, who I think he's a consultant within the Lakers, not really on paper that high-powered a position, but these two seem to have a lot of say in what's going on with the on-the-court situation with the Los Angeles Lakers, where they seem to have some kind of sway and power when it comes to who's getting playing time, who's not, what kind of roster moves are are being done, and seem to very much undermine Frank Vogel this season. That's why, you know, we've seen the, the last 24 hours the reports come out about Jawan Howard and him turning down uh, the L, the Lakers' interest in even just an interview. And it's understandable why he would do that because, you know, he's got a good situation there at Michigan. It's not like uh, it was back in the old days where you, to make your money as a head coach, you'd rather coach in the NBA rather so than college. These big time programs will pay coaches to stay these days. And on top of that, that his two sons are 
going to be there next year. Both Jace and Jet are going to be on the team next year. He wants a great to have that opportunity to coach his sons. And I completely respect that. But he would have been the perfect candidate for the Lakers because while he does have a good relationship with Rob Palenka playing um, uh, with him in college and uh, was a teammate of LeBron James uh, with the 2012 and 2013 uh NBA champion Miami Heat. He also has a presence about himself. You know, we see all the time his reaction on the bench, and that's led to some of the suspensions he's had um, in college basketball. But at the same time, he's a no-nonsense, no-BS kind of guy that would have came in from day one and been like, I'm not putting up with this crap. I'm not putting up with... No, outside sources have control. I control what goes on on the court. No, Jeannie Buss, Rob Palenka, you guys uh, buy the groceries, but I'm making the meal here. A guy like that, that's a guy that you needed. Or Mark Jackson or Jeff Van Gundy, those kind of people that are going to come in and put their foot down and from day one, when it comes to the actual basketball stuff, who's in the rotation, who's not, who's um, playing, the day-to-day stuff when it comes to the team, that's the kind of person you needed. Not three guys who, unfortunately, I hate to say this, especially about Kenny because I like him a lot, seem like yes-men. And now the, the Lakers, between that, between all the off-the-court nonsense, and then you look at that roster, the fact that you've still got all this money tied up to Russell Westbrook, you've got a team that seemingly is miscasted, you don't have a lot of shooting, you don't have a lot of young players on this team to surround LeBron and the often-injured Anthony Davis. The Lakers don't, while there's all the glitz and glam of L.A. and of the tradition when it comes to the purple and gold. The Lakers don't seem like a destination right now that anybody worth their salt really wants. And it is very damning to me when you see someone like a Jawan Howard even just turn down an interview. The Lakers, quite frankly, have to look themselves in the mirror and realize what their problems are. And that's both on the court and even worse, off the court. And that, my friends, is Keeping It Sports with M3 from Monday, May 23rd, 2022. Everyone, please have a great week. Have a great night. Probably won't be on next week because it's um, Memorial Day. But hopefully by next Tuesday, I'll talk to you again. And until then, stay safe. Peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya?
I don't want to see you, I don't want to hear you, and I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.